Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. As always, context is the most important thing when you're looking at any passage of scripture. In fact, most heresies or most beliefs that take us down rabbit holes are because people have taken things out of context. So um, if we go back quite a few weeks, we began this series and Daniel started telling us about the distinctives of Corinth, what made Corinth such a particular city. So I'm just going to do a quick quiz to see if anyone's remembered anything, don't be discouraged, uh, about what he said. What, what made Corinth distinctive? Any suggestions? Come on, somebody must think of something, even if it's a guess. Centre of trade, yeah, very much a, a, a massive financial and trade centre. Nice pastries. Nice. Nice pastries. That was true, but that wasn't in my notes. They did make nice pastries. I'll put you out of your misery. It was a very cool place. It was the height of fashion and arts. And what was particular about it, it was full of celebrities. Corinth ran on a celebrity culture. There were very famous speakers, uh, famous trades, famous rich people. Corinth was, well, really just like London, wasn't it? Which is one of the reasons why we're doing this series. People also felt very touchy about their rights and not so concerned about their responsibility and service, as we'll see during this passage. And Paul's underlying theme through the whole of this letter, really, is to say, is to draw some boundaries is to explain some differences and say, how are you as a church going to be different? How are you going to engage with your friends, but how are you going to be different? And that's really the theme that we've been following and will continue to follow. And it's exactly why we're doing this series. But crucially, he does something else as well. In every situation, he explains why we're different. He doesn't just tell you the difference. We're not going to be saying anything in these next few weeks when we talk about relationships, sexuality, which is going to surprise you, I don't think. But what we're going to be saying is, why do we believe this? Which is crucially important. Because, I don't know about you, but when you have conversations with your friends on these issues, if you go straight into the issue, it's very difficult. It gets very polarised straight away. But I suggest we try something else. And when someone wants to open these sort of issues up, we say, please, can I just explain where I'm coming from on this? Because that becomes a very different conversation. We can start talking about, well, I believe we were created in the image of God. And we can start talking about that. And it suddenly gives a reason for why we might believe something different. So can I encourage us to do that? That, I think, is exactly what Paul is doing through the whole of this letter. And although we're looking at an issue that I think seems pretty irrelevant, I won't ask if any of us have taken any other Christians to court, but I think I'd be fairly safe in thinking it would be minimal or zero. The reasons behind this, again, are going to apply to lots of other things in our lives. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Why does Paul say it's not a good idea to take Christians to court? So just to explain the issue, Corinth was a very litigious society. That means people responded, took people to court very easily. 
You could say, uh, in, in many ways, there's parallels in America where people use the court for all sorts of things. And Corinth was very much like that. In the marketplace, there was a thing called the Beamer, which was where you would bring your case. And it was actually a spectator sport. Everyone would come and gather if they had any free time, see what the cases were that day. Sort of a cross between sort of um, reality TV and suits. <laughs> but what happening? You could just go and listen to it. It was great entertainment. So this is the context of what was going on. And people in the church were starting, obviously, to take their disputes with other members to this court. And Paul is horrified. We mustn't go away. The language here is really strong. He is horrified that they do this. The Jews would never do that. That was part of their heritage, not to do that. But this is now a mixed church. Many of them are what were called Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, coming from a different background. And they were starting to do this. And he was horrified for three reasons. One, that it dishonoured the gospel. It undermined the whole story, the whole life that Christians were living by taking other Christians to court. Secondly, by doing this, they completely lost sight of their destiny and their present reality and the resources God had given them. And then thirdly, they'd lost connection with Jesus because we're followers of him, aren't we? And that means becoming more like him. And they were going in the opposite direction. So these are the three reasons we're going to dig into it in a minute. But it's important uh, for Bibi and a few other people here just to say Paul is not against lawyers or against judges. Romans 13 is very clear that God actually appoints judges in society for the good of society. Because we're not talking here about criminal law where someone has done something wrong against the laws of society. We're talking about civil where two people are having a dispute. And he's not saying it's, there's anything wrong with lawyers. Okay? In fact, uh, I've been involved in a few situations over the years dealing with very difficult situations in church life and leadership where we've actually consulted lawyers because we needed their advice. We needed their skill. We needed their experience. They did not decide the action we took. We decided. But we needed their skills and experience. So just to put that as a context. So, first reasons. If you take another Christian to court, you are dishonouring the gospel. You're effectively saying the gospel is a sham. You're saying it's, it's empty of the wisdom to make a judgment. You're saying it lacks the power to forgive. And you're saying that there's no faith to believe in reconciliation. Just saying it's a sham. That it's words and words only. This is the gospel. This is the story of Jesus Christ. This is what transforms the world. These are the most precious words ever written or read. The most powerful thing you will ever find in your life. This is the gospel. It's the foundation of who we are and all that we do. It's the most precious and powerful thing in the universe. So to dishonor it is serious. It's as though it's just a nice religious story. That's why Paul says it's shameful to dishonor it. In Titus 2 verse 10, he talks about how we live our lives. And he says, so that in everything we do, we may adorn 
the doctrine of God, the gospel. Your and my actions and decisions are like adornment, like jewels on the gospel or filth, one or the other. That's why this is weighty, because people see the gospel through us. The good news is, Paul goes on to say in the same passage, for the grace of God has appeared bearing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. On my own, I cannot adorn the gospel. I doubt if you can either very much. But by the grace of God, we can. That's why Paul follows it with that. We have the grace and the power of God. So though this is a weighty matter, it is a glorious matter, and there is provision for us to live in a way that adorns the gospel. And when we do, when we do, people ask questions. When we forgive, when other people can't forgive. When we cope with difficulty and still find joy in it. When we reach out and serve the people who are least attractive, the gospel is adorned. Secondly, he's saying they lost sight of who they are, their present reality and their future destiny. He makes a remarkable statement. He says the least person in the church in terms of their experience or wisdom or training, if they're filled with the Spirit, can judge the most complex issues that there are. That's radical. You see, we've been given the same Spirit as Jesus, haven't we? It's been, spirit has been poured out on us. So therefore, what was written about Jesus is true about us. Isaiah 11, verse 2. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, it's yours today as we ask him to come and fill us again with his spirit. Isn't that amazing? What, they'd lost sight of what they had available in them. Ephesians 1, verse 17, Paul prays, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of revelation and knowledge of him. Later on, it says, through the church and how we handle issues like this, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. Jesus is the wisdom of God. That's what it says in Colossians, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And to round it off, James says, we only need to ask God if we lack wisdom and he will give generously to all without reproach. Do you need wisdom? Well, you know where to find it now. And it is a wisdom that is sufficient for all of these challenges, however complex they are. Followers of Jesus are incredibly supernaturally wise if they let themselves be. You and me. And the Corinthians had lost this. But even... Even further, Paul goes a step further and says, okay, that's, that's the world, but do you not realize we're going to judge angels? Do you know you're going to judge angels? I'm not sure I did before I read this passage. <laughs> so what's all this about? Well, there's some clues. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It talks about if God did not spare angels when they sinned. So there is a judgment for angels in Jude, that rather quirky book, Chapter 1, verse 6, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority and abandoned their home 
will be judged. So clearly something happened in eternity past where Satan, who would appear to be in origin an angel parallel with Gabriel, an archangel, rebelled against God, left heaven and took with him possibly up to a third of the angels. If you want to go to Isaiah 14 verse 12 and read that passage, it's an intriguing passage, gives you a glimpse. We get glimpses of this. Something is going on here beyond our understanding. But we're going to judge angels. I think angels have quite a difficult role to play at the best of times. <laughs> I mean, they're caught up in worshipping God, aren't they? They see God. Their whole energy is caught up in worshipping God. But they're also very busy serving us. Do you know you have angels serving you in ways we can't see or imagine? And yet, Ephesians tells us they don't really understand what this is all about. <laughs> Ephesians 3, it talks about angels looking in, trying to understand. I think, I think maybe we, we do do a an appraisal for angels. <laughs> I mean, it's quite interesting. Paul here doesn't just talk about fallen angels, which is how he normally, he just says angels. So maybe, maybe we are destined, equipped, and anointed to judge heavenly beings, such as angels. And in fact, in this passage, he says it's not just angels. He says we're going to judge the world alongside him. That's pretty mind-blowing. It's difficult, isn't it? These sound like words, but you know, try and imagine. You are one day, you and I, who know Jesus, one day are going to be sitting on a throne. It talks in Revelations about sitting on thrones. And we're going to play a part somehow in judging all of this world. All the politics, all the power, all the rich people, all the celebrities, all the stuff. We will judge the world. I don't have time to read through Daniel 7. But if you want to dig into this, look at Daniel 7. It's a remarkable book, Daniel, and it's a series of visions. And this is, a, this is an essentially very practical man. This is, um, I'll be careful how I say this. This is not a church leader. This is somebody who does a normal job. <laughs> In fact, a massive normal job. And yet he has these incredible visions. And there is one, if you go through Daniel 7, verses 9 to 27, which is looking forward to this occasion and explaining it and it's quite hard to get your head around but there are glimpses again there it ends with us being in the heavenly courts sitting on thrones judging the world we're going to do that one day if god feels we can do that then maybe we can judge things here i sometimes wonder myself whether my i feel lack of consistent passion for jesus or faith that goes up and down sometimes or lack of experience of the power and presence of God wherever I am is actually partly just due that I don't think about heaven enough that I'm not aware like these Corinthians of my eternal destiny that somehow all the pleasures and attractions and activities and busyness and social media of this world dims my view of heaven it's certainly true that Christians in parts of the world who have least seem to know heaven best and draw on it. I think that's a challenge for us living here. Being more heavenly minded, being more heavenly aware, I think would affect how we live day to day. Thirdly, they'd lost sight of the one who saved them, who'd promised, who they promised to follow. 
They lost sight of the one who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. Jesus never stood on his rights. He never asked for the stuff that he was due when he was on this world. He never asked for banquets of food. He never asked for lovely places to live. He never asked for nice clothes. I mean, they were all his. And even more, he never pushed back when he was betrayed, insulted, reviled, and beaten. He never stood on his rights. We follow a crucified Lord who calls us day to day to take up our cross and follow him. That's what Paul is thinking of when he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? If we're following Jesus, surely that's not such a big deal. It's a much smaller deal than dishonoring the gospel. Sometimes we feel we cannot forgive. Forgiving is difficult. Sometimes we feel we cannot forgive until the other person has apologized. This is a huge topic, but I, I want to touch on it because it's here. Forgiveness is a really important thing in our world. In fact, unforgiveness is one of the biggest traps of the devil that stops us being effective in our Christian lives. It is hard to forgive, particularly when someone doesn't apologize. Until we turn to Matthew 18, in verse 21, where Peter says to Jesus rather foolishly, how often should I forgive my brother? And he says, seven times, because that's quite big and it's a nice complete number. And what was Jesus' response? 77 times. Now, even seven times, you would have at least thought if the person who'd done this apologized and went back and did it again and apologized and went back and did it again and apologized and went back and did it again for seven times. It's a pretty insincere apology, isn't it? That would not count as an apology in my book. 77 times? So Jesus is calling us to forgive people who don't manage to apologize. How do we do this? Well, as always, Jesus explains. So he goes straight into this parable of the steward who's been, been forgiven. Now let me just tell the parable quickly. It's again in Matthew 18. This steward comes to his uh, master and um, the master's doing accounts and the master says, you owe me a large amount of money. And the steward says, I'm sorry, I can't pay, give me time. Now, the audience would have found this very entertaining because the amount of money that's at stake here is over two million pounds. <laughs> Which is a lot for us, but enormous for them. They would, have, they would have smiled when Jesus gave the figure. They would have thought, this is ridiculous. Two million pounds. <laughs> what on earth is the master going to do? You know, will, will, will he, even if he gave him time, <laughs> he wouldn't be able to solve it. And then, and then Jesus goes, gobsmacks them, because the master says, I write it off. I write off two million pounds. The whole debt. Just like that. Amazing. Sadly then, the servant goes out and finds one of his colleagues who owes him less than a pound. Less than a pound. And the colleague says, oh, I can't pay, please forgive me. And, and, the, and the guy says, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to put you in jail. 
When the master hears about it, not surprisingly, he says, this isn't right. <laughs> I was merciful to you. How were you not merciful to him? Jesus starts this parable by saying, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is a kingdom parallel. This is how life really works. We've been forgiven something massively greater than two million pounds. But at least that gives us a sense of the size of it, doesn't it? And what is amazing is, it's not just, we don't have to try and work it off in any shape or form. We've been forgiven it all. It's all been written off. It's an amazing picture of salvation. How, if we could only get hold of that, we wouldn't find it too hard to forgive the person who relatively has stolen a few pounds from us. So the secret to forgiveness, I think, and this has been a bigger topic and, and it's on prayer, is actually to come back to God and just recognise how much he's forgiven us. And I really feel that Henry comes in here again, Henry the tank engine. Because to not forgive someone is just like putting yourself in a tunnel and bricking up the outside and taking away the railway track to resolution. And I think there are some people here that God would say to you, I want to release you from that this morning. Okay? Because there may be another person, or it might actually, and, and you know, this term is slightly wrong, but you understand the heart of it, it may be we're struggling to forgive God, as it were. Because he's done something, or not done something, that we find incredibly hard and don't understand. And we're bricking up the wall. Because this is one of the keys that Paul was talking about for the Corinthians. So from this passage, we see he's drawn out three fundamental realities that from what seemed to be a fairly irrelevant thing, like going to court, he's taught us that we can honour or dishonour the gospel by our lives, but we have grace to help us in that. He's taught us that by understanding and dwelling on our eternal destiny and all the resources he's given us, we have an amazing wisdom for all sorts of situations in the church and the world. And he's taught us that following Jesus is becoming like him. And we should give up on our rights. And he will come and meet with us and help us. And then at the end of this passage, he goes into this long list of behaviours that I think actually result from these same three things. That's why he's put it together. I'm not going to go through the list. We'll be tackling them as we go through later. But they're all, in a way, results of people not realising the importance of honouring the gospel, of not understanding our destiny, of not becoming like Jesus. And then he ends with this phrase, don't fool yourselves. He has a punchy ending. Right at the end he says, it says in our version, don't be deceived, but actually he's saying, don't be a fool. Don't fool yourselves. And there's two ways in which we can fool ourselves, I think, as we end here. Firstly, we can fool ourselves, we could get to heaven by our own efforts or our own goodness. Many, many, many people are fooled by that. If you go and talk to the average person, generally, um, they will say, well, you know, will you go to heaven? Well, I hope so, I think maybe. But what we don't understand is the scales are massively out of balance. It's, it's utterly impossible to do anything that would even move them slightly 
in terms of the scale of our rebellion against God in comparison with what we could do for him. Foolish. The relationship is broken beyond our ability to repair. As someone said, this must be incredibly serious if it took the death of the Son of God to put it right. Nothing else could put it right. Because Christianity is not really a religion. It's certainly not a list of things to do or not do. It's a relationship. That's what it's all about. It's a relationship with the creator of the universe who's become our friend. And we said it before, but I'm going to say it again. If you don't know him as your friend, you can just turn to him. He is more eager to find us than we are to find him. But there is a gate you have to go through. There is a door to go through of saying, I can't do this. I can't get right. I need help. And I'm prepared to submit to you. This is not a light thing. This isn't just come to Jesus and everything will be all right. No, this is, I'm giving you my life. I'm acknowledging you, our Lord. But I'm believing by doing that, you'll transform me. So that is one form of foolishness. The second form of foolishness is to think, and this may apply to more of us, that by slipping back into those old ways, it doesn't really matter too much. As he says in the passage, uh, you were once like this. And we were once like a number of things. And if we're honest, we're still weak in those areas. And we're tempted. And sometimes we do fall back. But if we fall, the important thing is don't wallow down there. Don't feel guilty. Don't try and work it out. Don't, because that's not how, you, how we get out of it. We stand on our feet again. We say thank you for forgiveness, for salvation. God is never disillusioned with you because he never had illusions in the first place. But what is important is we press on and we worship and we try and become more like Jesus. So don't be foolish and think, well, those things don't matter, that sin doesn't matter, I shouldn't be fighting it anymore, I can just give in to it. No, don't give in to it. Seek God's help to change. Don't be foolish.